Welcome to the Healing Pain Podcast. Your host, Dr. Joe Tata, leads the conversation around the way pain is treated in the U.S. and around the world with experts from the fields of medicine, physical therapy, nutrition, personal development, exercise, psychology, and more. Each week, you can listen to receive free information about ways to treat and reverse chronic persistent pain. Now, here is Dr. Joe Tata. Hey, everyone. Welcome to another episode of the Healing Pain Podcast. I am your host, Dr. Joe Tata. As always, it is an honor and pleasure to be here with you this week. This week, we are talking about the topic of self-compassion. And it's really a topic and a tool that you can use to improve your well-being, your self-confidence, and your resilience. And it's one that I believe we need to pay attention to a lot more in the world of pain care. And what's really interesting about self-compassion is that oftentimes it's easy for us to be compassionate towards others, but applying the same kindness to ourselves can be a real challenge. Joining us today on the podcast to talk about self-compassion is Dr. Kristen Neff. Kristen studied communications as an undergraduate and completed her graduate work at the University of California, Berkeley, studying moral development. Her dissertation research was conducted in India, where she examined children's moral reasoning. She then went on to spend two years of postdoctoral study at Denver University, looking at authenticity and self-concept development. She is currently an associate professor at the University of Texas at Austin. In her last year of graduate school, she became interested in Buddhism and has been practicing meditation in the insight meditation tradition ever since. While doing her postdoctoral work, she decided to conduct research on self-compassion, a central construct in Buddhist psychology, and one that had yet to be examined empirically. In addition to her pioneering research into self-compassion, she has developed an eight-week program to teach self-compassion skills. The program is co-created with her colleague, Chris Germer, and affiliated with Harvard Medical School, and is called Mindful Self-Compassion. Dr. Neff is also the author of a book called Self-Compassion, which was published in 2011 by William and Morrow. On today's podcast, we will discuss why self-compassion is important not only for those living with chronic pain, but also for the practitioners who treat pain every day in the clinic. As always, if you're a new listener to the Healing Pain Podcast, I want to extend a warm welcome to you. Make sure that you sign up for our mailing list so you can join our tribe of healers looking to heal chronic pain naturally with non-pharmacologic treatments. You can hop over to www.drjotata.com forward slash podcasts and you can sign up for the mailing list so I can send you a new podcast each and every week directly to your inbox. If you are a practitioner, make sure you hop on over to the integrative painscienceinstitute.com and check out some of the cool courses and things we've got going on there. Okay, without further ado, let's begin with Dr. Kristen Neff. Hi, Kristen. Welcome to the podcast. It's great to have you here. Hi, Joe. It's great to be here. I've been a big fan of your work for quite a while, and weaving mindfulness work into those with chronic pain is so important. And the the concepts of compassion, and especially self-compassion, which People just have to start to open the door and kind of peek into when it comes to living with chronic pain or a chronic illness. I think the best way to lead into this today is just to give us your definition of what self-compassion is and why it's so important. 
Yeah, well, I think especially for people with chronic pain, self-compassion is absolutely key. So just to say there is a lot of overlap between mindfulness and self-compassion. In fact, the first step of self-compassion is to be mindful that you're in pain, either emotional pain or physical pain, and to be able to relate to that pain with kind of an accepting stance instead of fighting it and resisting it. You know, I wish I wasn't feeling this pain, which sadly we know just makes things worse, kind of accepting, okay, this is the reality, I'm feeling pain, and you know, giving it space, very key. But, you know, we don't want to just stop there. We want the heart to be involved as well, not just our awareness. And so what self-compassion does is it adds two components to mindfulness. Uh, first is warmth and kindness. In other words, you could acknowledge you're in pain, and you don't want to fight it, but at the same time, it's like, ouch, it hurts. You know, I'm so sorry I'm in pain. That tenderness, that care, just like, if you have a friend or a child who's in pain, you just naturally say, oh, I'm so sorry. And there's a warmth and tenderness and concern that goes toward the person in pain. We can actually do that with ourselves. And it also really helps us hold the pain. And we're able to have that warmth and tenderness toward ourselves. So kindness, love, really, if you want to be um, non-scientific about it, it really is love. But then there's another element that's really crucial, and that's uh, remembering humanity, really, connectedness. I mean, if you look at the root of the word compassion, it means compassion, suffer with. Passion means suffer, come means with. So inherent to the state of compassion is some sense of, you know, this is the human condition. We're all imperfect. We all lead imperfect lives. And this is very different than pity. Pity is like, you know, poor you or poor me, as if somehow it's only me who's suffering. Compassion really reminds us that, hey, this is life. This is human. It doesn't mean we care any less about our suffering. We don't get lost in our personal suffering. But here's what happens. Often when people are experiencing, again, emotional or physical pain, there's this weird irrational reaction of something has gone wrong. This shouldn't be happening. Actually, what should be happening is I am perfect and my life is perfect. And when that's not the case, something has gone wrong. It's kind of illogically as if everyone else in the entire world is leading a perfectly normal, problem-free life. And it's just me who's having this issue. And um, that kind of irrational reaction we tend to have is really damaging because not only are we suffering, we feel all alone and disconnected in our suffering. So when we just remember that, hey, everyone has their own flavor of suffering. You know, I have an autistic child. Maybe you've got back pain. Maybe this other person has trauma history. I mean, everyone has some flavor of pain that, that mounts different and the way it manifests is different. But the human experience is about challenges. I mean, that's what it means to be human. There's no person alive that doesn't have some sort of pain or difficulty. And so when we remember that truth, what happens is instead of feeling all alone and isolated in our struggles, we feel more connected to other people. And that sense of connectedness also gives us a sense of a strength and coping and feeling like we can handle this because this is actually the human condition. So really, just to remind you again, those three components, mindfulness of our pain, kind response, warm response to that pain, and a feeling of connectedness, remembering that this is part of life for everyone.
Mm. Mindfulness, kindness, and a kind response. It's a really great on-ramp to today's conversation. Yeah. As you're talking and as I was preparing for this podcast, I was getting kind of these flashbacks of past patients that I've had mm-hmm. that were able to step into a sense of self-compassion kind of easily. And then those that, you know, look at it like, well, this is not for me. Or yeah. This is not for me because in my life, I have to be fight. I have to fight. I'm a fighter. I have to kind of overcome pain. Yes. I don't actually don't, personally, I don't like the word overcoming pain because I, it just does just that. It puts people in this fight or flight response, which yeah, is yeah. worse. So mm-hmm. talking to some of those objections, like someone who feels like they have to fight and it's not in line with self-compassion. Yeah. Well, actually, if you want to know physiologically why people aren't more self-compassionate and why it's easier to be compassionate to others than ourselves, it's because whenever we feel threatened, our primary response is the fight or flight response, right? Our nervous system, the sympathetic nervous reaction, we go into... There's a problem, I need to get ready for fight or flight, we pump up adrenaline and cortisol, and you know we want to control things so that we're safe. Of course we do, it's, it's perfectly natural. For instance, in your pain, I'm not so threatened by your pain, so I'm more able to be my naturally warm, compassionate self. But when I'm in pain or something that's difficult in my life, I immediately want to control the situation and fight it. Perfectly natural. The only problem, of course, is what we know psychologically is the more we fight pain and resist it and say this shouldn't be happening and I need to control it and I'm really pissed off that I can't control it, it actually increases the pain, both physically and emotionally. It just makes things worse. I mean, if fighting pain worked, I would say go for it. More power to you, really. But that type of resistance, actually, we know, it doesn't mean you can't take lots of active steps to try to deal with the pain. Absolutely. But emotionally fighting it, feeling like this can't be happening and I'm going to control the situation, well, good luck. That's not what life is about. And so what you do is you learn to help move your sense of safety from fighting, fighting the problem, which is natural, to the care system. I mean, that's another way we feel safe. So for instance, even lizards have the fight or flight response. They'll move away from a danger and they'll run or they'll fight if they have to. All animals have that. What's special about mammals is another way we feel safe is through this soothing affiliation system. You know, when your parents or a family member cuddles up next to you or holds you close or soothes you or comforts you, that's another way that we can feel safe. That's actually our our parasympathetic nervous response, at least partly. And so what you're doing with when you move to compassion is you're just using another way to help you feel safe doesn't mean that you aren't still going to do everything you can to improve your situation. Instead of resisting what is, you're just kind of working with what is, comforting and being there, supporting yourself while you're coping. That actually gives you the peace of mind and that sense of connectedness that's going to help you make better choices. It's interesting. Most people don't believe it. (laughs) They don't really believe it until they try it because they're so used to coping with the fight or flight response. And the fear response, again, perfectly, perfectly natural. This can really, really help us feel safe so that we can take constructive action. And as people start to enter this work and you start to Mm -hmm. work with them and they explore your work and your website, Mm -hmm. your books, do they, first couple of weeks is going good, next couple of weeks I'm feeling better. And then do they hit like a speed bump where they say, 
I think I'm being I'm self-centered and I'm only focusing on myself and not others. Yeah, so yes and no. So the thing about that I'm being self-centered, that actually usually doesn't happen after you start practicing self-compassion. That's a fear for why people don't practice self-compassion. They think that if they give themselves kindness, that's going to make them more self-centered and that's why they don't do it. In fact, it's exactly the opposite. All the research shows that being self-compassionate makes you less self-centered. I mean, when you feel connected and you feel like another fellow human being in your experience instead of poor me, you're actually less self-centered. You have more resources to give to other people. So that one actually happens beforehand. But there is a roadblock people hit, and that's basically what happens with self-compassion practice is really what you're doing is we give ourselves compassion not to feel better, but because we feel bad, okay? So what happens is first you're just, oh, I'm just, my heart's breaking. This is so difficult. And it's like this warm, oh, I'm so sorry. And kind of being tenderness and warmth and supportive for supportive friendliness to oneself. And it actually sometimes does actually help you feel a little bit better. And then what happens is your intention changes. And instead of just giving yourself compassion because it's so hard, it's so painful, you start doing it to try to make the pain go away. Our minds are very clever, like, oh, I'll put my hands on my heart. This is like a very common way to help yourself have compassion. You put your hands on your heart. You start doing it to make the pain go away. And then what happens is eventually that morphs into a form of resistance. You're using self-compassion as just one more manipulation technique to try to control your environment. And it doesn't work because control is impossible, right? You know, it's another form of resistance. And so that's what can happen. And when that happens, people start thinking, oh, I'm not very good at this. It's not working for me. So that can happen. Another thing that can happen is a process we call a backdraft. Backdraft is a firefighting term. You may be familiar with it. Um, firefighters, when they go to a house on fire, they don't just fling open the doors to get the fire out because if they do that, the air rushes in and the flames rush out. And it can actually be a bit like that with self-compassion practice. Maybe our entire lives we've closed the doors of our heart to try to protect ourselves we needed to. And then we start opening the doors of our hearts, giving ourselves some warmth, giving us ourselves some kindness, and the love rushes in and the old pain rushes out. And that's called backdraft. Very normal part of the process. It's actually just temporary. You can work with it. Um, it's not a problem. If you don't know about it, again, people think, oh, I'm really bad at this, and then they give up. So really what makes self-compassion practice work is the way your intention. You don't do it to try to fix things. It's not one more thing you got to get right. It's just a really turning toward the reality of the pain of life. Again, physical or emotional, everyone has their flavor of pain. And just letting your heart melt a little bit in the face of that pain, you know, with kind of friendliness, with goodwill, with helpful, supportive action. And then that little shift can make remarkable changes in your ability to cope with life. And so, for instance, you know, you, you work with patients with chronic pain. There's studies that actually show not only does it help people cope emotionally, we think it actually maybe helps uh, physically as well because often, again, what we know is that when you resist pain, you have a lot of fear. It actually increases the level, the physical perception of pain. But what happens when you give yourself kindness, you help yourself feel safe. It's like, okay, this is really overwhelming. 
and I got my own back. I'll be here. I won't abandon myself in the midst of my pain. I'll still love and care for myself as best I can. Then it helps us feel safe. And that can actually reduce the perception of how, how much it hurts. We're doing some studies now at Harvard on pain, and we don't know the results yet, so I can't share them with you, but we have people with chronic pain and they're practicing self-compassion. We're doing a study where they've got a pain cuff, like give them pain, like give them an induced pain, like kind of the temporary one, and see if they use their self-compassion practice to work with it and how it actually changes their brain. Again, we don't have the results yet, but we're gonna get them soon, so it's really interesting. But subjectively, people report that this kindness, this warmth, this support, this feeling of connectedness, it really just helps being able to cope with the pain and it doesn't make it so overwhelming. Mm, that study sounds really interesting when it comes yeah, to it. Yeah, it does. I'll let you know as soon as we get the results. Yeah, yeah. we'd love to hear about that. I, I love your metaphor of the backdraft. I think that if people, yeah. people can obviously rewind this and listen to mm-hmm. that again, but it really talks to a lot of people who go through physical pain, emotional pain, all sorts of different type of yeah. where it might come back basically. And by the way, I just have to say, you have to respect backdraft. Like if you try to practice self-compassion and you get overwhelmed with feelings of terror, then, then pull back a little bit, right? You don't want to just practice being overwhelmed. We can go slowly. We can be, allow ourselves to be slow learners. People with trauma histories, for instance, they need to go more slowly because of all the backdraft. So, you know, respect it. That's just your mind saying, okay, a little overwhelming here. I got to pull back. But you can pull back without giving up. And you can find some other way to comfort yourself. Well, maybe saying kind things to myself is too much. Maybe I'll just take a bath or something like that. You know, or put my cat, something that's not so emotionally activating. And when you do that, you're actually still practicing self-compassion, caring for yourself. Beautiful. So you, of course, have um, a couple of books. You have a new book coming out called The Mindful Self-Compassion Workbook. Yes. You have uh, programs where practitioners can train. Of course, everyone can find all of that at selfcompassion.org. Yes. Uh, Kristen's yeah. website. It's a great website. Check it out. Thank you. Can you tell us about kind of the skeleton of your program for practitioners? Yeah. So this is something that I've developed with my um, colleague, Chris Germer, and we've been working on it for almost a decade now, this program, and it's actually taught all over the world. If you go to my website, you can link to the Center for Mindful Self-Compassion and find a course in your area. But basically... It's a program that we developed to actually help people learn the skills of self-compassion. You know, we know from the research it's helpful. How do people learn it? And so it's an eight-week program. I think there's something like 37 meditations and practices in the program, like concrete things you can actually do to practice self-compassion, to retrain your neural pathways. So we do have some meditations, but um, the interesting thing about self-compassion practice is it doesn't require meditation. Not everyone's a meditator, let's face it. So there's a lot of informal practices, like something we call the self-compassion break, which is just when you notice you're struggling, first of all, you use the mindfulness to actually acknowledge, hey, this is really difficult for me right now. I'm having trouble. This is hard. Mindfulness. And then, well, this is part of life. It's not just me. You know, everyone struggles. So you can kind of combat that all sense of isolation. And then you usually give yourself some sort of comforting gesture, like hands on your face, maybe your heart, or hold your own hand, and just kind of some physical sign of support. And then you say some words of kindness. You might think, well, gosh, what would I say to a really close friend who is experiencing this right now? Well, let me try saying it to myself. 
So very simple practices like that, which maybe take one minute, can make a radically powerful change in people's lives. Um, it's, there's lots of little practices like that in the book, and it, it's sequenced so that skills build sequentially. Let's say I'm pretty proud of that program. I, I think, especially because Chris, my partner Chris, um, he's done a lot of the work on it. We've really worked hard, and it, it's uh, pretty good. If I say so myself, not <laughs> for for a decade. You said. Yeah, yeah. So yeah, first program we taught was terrible. We didn't know what we were doing. Half the people left. That was ten years ago. But now it's pretty seamless, and partly it's because we have teachers all over the world. We do with thousands of teachers, and they say, "Oh, this worked with my class. This didn't." And so it's been refined and refined, and it's kind of a community project at this point. And I think that's why it's so good because it's been tested and tested and tested, and what's left in the program seems to really work. So, Amazing! Yeah. I know you guys have done great work, and you've been worked on it for a long time. It's definitely yeah. that's needed in many areas. Talk to me about resiliency. Yes. And when it comes uh -huh. to self-compassion. Yeah, I mean, so I think if you were to sum up the research literature, which is huge now, I think there's 1,600 studies on self-compassion at this point. I think that one of the things you can say clearly from the research is self-compassion provides strength and resiliency. So again, if you think about it, people who are going through some sort of difficulty, emotional pain, physical pain, you name it, to be supportive towards yourself, to be kind, to be caring, actually gives you the strength you need to cope. So let me just give you an example of one study. We did a study of veterans who had actually come back from Iraq or Afghanistan, you know, people who saw action. And we measured their self-compassion level, the soldier's self-compassion level. We followed them up for nine months to see, well, who developed PTSD symptoms or not, post-traumatic stress syndrome. And what we found is that that's level of self-compassion was a powerful predictor of whether or not they develop PTSD. And vets who are kinder, more supportive to themselves, they were less likely to develop PTSD. In fact, we found that that level of self-compassion was more and more important determinant of whether or not they develop PTSD and how much action they'd seen overseas. If you think about it, that's pretty powerful. And so I like the veterans example as a metaphor because if you think about it, when you go into battle, who do you want by your side? Do you want an ally who's saying, they got your back, I care about you, I'm here for you? Or do you want an enemy that says, you're crap, you're no good, you know, it's not good enough, try harder? I mean, who's going to actually help you in that moment of battle, an inner ally or an inner enemy? And clearly, if we're an inner ally, a friend to ourselves, that's going to help us cope and be resilient with life's difficulties. So I think that's why the research is so powerful. Yeah. yeah. And speaking of research, if someone's listening to this and they yeah. go into your website, they maybe have tried different types of mindfulness approaches. Is there a way yeah. they can test their own self-compassion? Yes. Yeah. Well, that's, that's kind of how I made my name. <laughs> you can take the Neff self-compassion scale. So no, that was yeah, 15 years ago when I first decided I wanted to research self-compassion. It hadn't really been looked at empirically. So I developed a scale to measure it called the Neff Self-Compassion Scale. And you can take it on my website. It'll score it for you and give you a readout on how self-compassionate you are. And you can actually track yourself over time to see what changes if you start. Because I also have a lot of practices on my website. I have meditations, written exercises, little practices you can do or you can buy the Mindful Self-Compassion Workshop and lead your, yourself through these practices and just see if there are any changes. But absolutely, yeah, it's, uh, 
this is it's contemplative practice but it's also hard science there's a lot of research behind what we do and why we do it yeah how has teaching this work started to change either you or your own sense of self-compassion yeah so i have to say i feel like i've got the best job in the world because um i do like the hard science i like doing research i like writing manuscripts i like crunching numbers i like doing all that stuff but it's just from the head that's just kind of it's intellectually interesting but it's more thought process and when i teach self-compassion you know when i guide people through a practice to help them be kind to themselves when i embody self-compassion and to really teach self-compassion you need to embody it you drop down from the head into the heart you become embodied and it's wonderful and i have to say i get emails from people talking about how my work has really helped them and it's just so amazingly gratifying to be able to do what i love so yeah, yeah i'm pretty lucky so your book is out now yeah and of course everyone can find it at selfcompassion.org yes uh -huh. read about your work can you tell us about some of the plans you have coming up as far as lectures and workshops how can people like you know, yeah them? so on my website again you can look at my workshop schedule i am a professor at a university so i can't travel that much but i do probably once or maybe sometimes twice a month i um, teach a workshop i teach a lot of one-day workshops i do teach the full mindful self-compassion course with my partner chris germer several times a year we kind of it's an eight-week course but we scrunch it all into five days and call it an intensive and you can do that and also look at ted talks and other things i have on there the nice thing about self-compassion is that you can really learn it from anyone like i say we have thousands of teachers all over the world you can go to centerformsc.org and see if there's a course in your area it's definitely more and more available every day now i really hope some people do because it's such an easy and powerful gift you can give to yourself there's really no reason not to be a friend to yourself it's just our cultural conditioning that tells us we shouldn't yeah it's such important work and i think uh, mm -hmm. self-compassion helps people open up to the fact that when they open up to pain instead of running away yes. from it or avoiding it it's really the way to start to overcome it that's right yeah. but to open up to pain we need to have our own back. In other words, one thing we think about self-compassion is it's a way of holding pain with love. It's not safe to open to pain if we're just like gonna grit and bear it, you know, okay, I can feel this. But when we like, oh, crying child tenderly in our arms, when we hold the pain with love and start to rest our awareness in the love that holds the pain instead of being overwhelmed by the pain, that's where we get our true strength. Beautiful. I think it's just great work. So of course, everyone can learn all about Kristen's work at selfcompassion.org. Make sure you check out her book, The Mindfulness Self-Compassion Workbook, which is on her website yes. today. It's available. Of course, make sure you share this episode out with your friends and family on Facebook, Twitter, LinkedIn, wherever your favorite social media tool is. Please share it out. It's important information for those living with chronic pain. Hop on to yeah. iTunes. Give us a five-star review. I want to thank Kristen for joining us on the podcast this week. And stay tuned next week as we talk about more integrative ways to overcome pain and suffering. Thank you. Thanks, Joe. Thank you for listening to the Healing Pain Podcast. For more information on this episode and access to links discussed, please visit drjotada.com and click on the podcast tab where you will find the blog post for this and all previous episodes and can sign up for Dr. Joe Tata's email list to receive the latest information on chronic pain. Also, make sure to stay connected on his Facebook page at Dr. Joe Tata.